In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, with the, uh, the arrival of the new year, there are lots of writers and commentators who have been putting out their top 10 lists for 2020. Top 10 movies, TV shows, musical releases. I always love it when on Fresh Air, Justin Chang gives us his top 10 movies of the year. I always make sure to write them down so I can try to see them before Oscars. But this year, there's a different kind of top 10 list that just about everyone seems to be carrying in their back pocket, ready to pull out and share at a moment's notice. It's their top 10 list of the most terrible things that happened in 2020. So many things went so very wrong for so many people this past year. It's a wonder any of us can settle on just 10. We all have our own lists. They include planetary crises and political disappointments and deeply personal tragedies. My own list of the top 10 most terrible things in 2020 includes the death of my father, the loss of in-person worship and classes, and the loss of several very dear members of our congregation, including just last week, Jack Hilliard and Anne Monroe. And of course, I'd have to add the horrors of the pandemic, the thousands who have lost their jobs, and a president who, it seems, will do anything to stay in power. Whenever it seems like terrible things are happening all at the same time, I remember this theory that Anne Lamott mentions in her book, Traveling Mercies. She said that in Tibet, whenever a lot of things start going wrong all at once, the people explain it by saying, it's happening in order to protect something big and lovely that is trying to get itself born. That this big and lovely something is trying to come into the world, but it needs us to be distracted so that it can be born as perfectly as possible. I love that theory. I love imagining that there's something perfect trying to get born in the world right now, and it needs us to be distracted by our calamities so that we don't screw it up. It's like when my sister Rebecca, who's a gourmet chef, came to visit on a Sunday evening and offered to cook us dinner. Before long, she was cooking up something fabulous and French and very complicated. Every saucepan I owned was on the burner. It was like she had four hands and arms working independently, chopping and flipping and stirring and measuring. I stuck my head in the kitchen. I said, hey, can I help? And she yelled, no, go away, watch football. And the dinner turned out to be amazing. The kitchen was a wreck. It took me hours to clean it up, but it was totally worth it. I think of 2020 that way. Here we are now, the kitchen's a mess. It will take us days and months and probably years to clean it up. But I wonder if maybe someday we'll be able to look back on 2020 and say, well, maybe not that it was worth it, but maybe at least there was some kind of consolation prize some kind of something wonderful that came from all of it. If those Tibetans are right, 
that must be one gorgeous, perfect thing getting born right about now. I think about that perfect being, Jesus, getting born in a stable, about those wise, when, wise ones coming by for a visit after traveling through an extremely dangerous and troubled world, kind of confirms Anne Lamott's theory because back then there were lots of terrible things happening all at once. There was Herod the Great, just to pick one terrible thing. Some of us might have our complaints about, you know, our politicians, but none of them compete with Herod who murdered his own wife and three of his own sons because he thought they threatened his power. According to the story, when Herod heard that the king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem, he had every child under two in that region murdered. So, you know, I guess it could be worse. There's this Episcopal priest and writer that I know named Heidi Haverkamp, who wrote about all of this recently. I think these two paragraphs that she wrote are maybe two of the more perfect things that were born in 2020 while we were distracted by our various catastrophes. She writes, the power of Herod is brutal, reactive, and paranoid. But the power of God is not like that. What if, in fact, God's power is just the opposite? What if the Son of God is, in fact, no match for a son of the gods, whether that's Caesar or Herod or Thor? Because the power of God is not like the power of superheroes or street fighters or avenging angels. Instead, according to the Gospels and the letters of Paul, the power of God is subversive vulnerable, and life-giving. What if the power of God is not a takeover or a massacre, but seeking and finding, going home by another way, second chances, and the spreading of good news like seeds near and far, good news that changes people, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. She goes on to write, we are living through a time when many people seem to wish that the power of God would be more like the power of Herod. But when churches or human beings try to wield God's power as though it were a cudgel instead of a handful of seeds, a baby, or a cross, we tend to get things like the Crusades and the Inquisition. The story of the Epiphany and of all the Christmas story is the beginning of a story about how God uses power in Jesus not to overpower us, but to dwell among us and to love through us. I love that. When we try to wield God's power as though it were a cudgel instead of a handful of seeds, we tend to get things like the Crusades and the Inquisition. This is about how God uses power not to overpower us, but to dwell among us and love through us. I think on these three wise ones as they set off on their journey, I wonder what they were thinking as they went off to follow that mysterious star. 
They must have known that it would be a, a journey conducted at night because how else are you going to follow a star but at night? They must have known it would be dangerous and they couldn't have known where that star would lead them or what exactly they would find at the end. They must have just known that this was their purpose, to go on this journey. And so they kept their eyes fixed on the star and they just kept following it every day, one step in front of the other, moved by a you know, barely rational trust that eventually they would be led to where they were meant to be. And of course, what they found in the end was something fragile and weak and brand new and perfect, something shining against the darkness, something free of the trappings of ego or pride or wealth or status, something overlooked by the world and yet unspeakably precious. Well, these, of course, are the elements of, of every spiritual journey, the search for that perfect thing, fragile and new, shining against the darkness, precious and yet overlooked. That's what this story really is to me, the story about the journey we're all on, the story about our own perfect birth. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks about this kind of awakening. He, he prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. With the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know this hope. In the end, it seems every religious tradition carries this message to us like a message in a bottle washed up from the infinite sea and coming to rest at our feet, which is this, that, that we can take heart, that no matter how difficult our lives become, there is something perfect being born right here at the heart of it all. That if we be wise, we best seek it out, that perfect something. We best have companions for the, journey, for the journey, and we best travel by night, that our search will be rewarded as we explore the neglected places, the refugee camps, the ravaged war zones of our own hearts. We'll know we're getting closer when we start to feel a little afraid. That's our star sent to guide us. We see it shine brighter as things around us become darker. Look for it, these ancient stories tell us, look for it in the places where your teeth are set on edge. Look for it in, in the memories and the dreams that glow like the windows of a simple village at night. Look for it past the squalor and the pain, look for that golden light. Duck your head as you enter the stable Take in the warm fragrance of the animals and the peace of a young mother finally at rest. There you will find what you've been searching for, fresh and alive, breathing your breath. There in that manger, that perfect child at rest, shining anew, is reaching for you. 
God's child, your child, both forever. There, at last, lay down your gifts. You have arrived. Amen.